Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really, really cool founder, you know, a founder that now he's on his second startup. We're going to be able to listen, you know, to how it is, you know, building a company in the U.S., building it in Brazil, uh, now there in, in South America. Uh, but again, you know, really incredible story around building, scaling, financing, the combination of lending and government, you know, team dynamics, uh, how and why to go after certain industries and how to implement technology. So a very cool interview that we have ahead of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Parker Tracy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Good to, good to be here. So originally born in Boston. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? It was great. It was great. As, uh, my folks are, my dad's Canadian. My mom's from Hong Kong. They, they went to Boston to, to go to grad school and never left. And so, yeah, I was born in Boston, grew up there. And uh, Boston was based on my base until until about 10 years ago when I moved to, moved to Sao Paulo. And you also went to boarding school. How how was the experience of going to boarding school and dealing with the unknown uncertainty? Now you're not at your house, you know, like, and you can't misbehave. How how, how was that? Yeah, it's it's very it's a very cool experience. It's um just being just injected into into like a forced um fit, you know solve your own problems type type culture is it's, it's really good for some people, really bad for for others. But it's um I don't know, it just Tommy. I mean, a lot of independence of how to just solve things by yourself, how to interact outside the, the scope and observation, surveillance state of, of, of living at home and stuff like that. Um, and it also kind of exposed me, like my, my folks are, in, you know, are international and stuff like that, but it exposed me to a lot of different people from different places in the United States, different places internationally. So it, it was definitely like an eye-opening experience in, in a lot of different ways and definitely shaped a little bit of like how I see, how I see the world. And what about math? And economics. Where does the love for math and economics come from? Yeah, um, I think it was probably forced love. I would say more, more than more than an, an inherent love. I think um, my family is very strict academically, and my dad is a PhD from MIT. He was he was a he was a professor there for for quite some time, and it was always just put into my brain that like anything that is STEM, right, like science or, or math. Is good. Everything else is like superfluous. Should be thought of as a hobby. So focus on those things. And growing up, I, I never really had like that much per perspective on like what's good and bad. Like even in high school and college, you couldn't really differentiate on like why, why computer science is better or worse than like a Spanish major. I just knew that the smartest kids did science and math, and I want to be like the smartest kids. And I thought the even smartest kids did uh, did math. So when when it, when I went to university, that's what I what I focused on. And there's typically two paths in math. There's the, the applied part should be like, um, you know, applied math and, and statistics and theory and logic and stuff like that. And then there's the theoretical path, which is like set theory and real analysis and, and stuff like that. And I just kept following. I thought the, the smartest kids would do the theoretical route, which are typically kids trying to go become professors, go to grad school and go professors. So I even went like the theoretical route. Um, and I would say it would just be kind of like blindly following people I looked up to as opposed to like some inherent value I saw or some inherent love with math. I definitely, when I graduated, I kind of like looked up like, oh my goodness, what was I doing? Not like computer science or industrial engineering or something like practical and useful and stuff like that. Um, 
so yeah, I think it was just basically following people I looked up to, like following mentors and and following that pathway more than following my heart. <laughs> so so being academics, you know, your parents and and that push for 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 growth and for learning. I mean, in your senior year, you decide that uh, it's time to build a company. You know, like I would assume that uh, when you have, you know, folks that uh, are in the in the academia world, probably they push you more into the certainty, right? And 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 versus, you know, perhaps the uncertainty of building a company. So how was that, you know, of uh, you launching a business at the same time as being in school? Um, so launching is is probably a, a, an aggressive word for, for what I was doing, but it's um, I did do an independent study. Um, like the economics department for like putting the pieces together and stuff like that. I found a few buds wanted to start the company with me, but I would say it's, it was a mix of two things. It was a mix of like one. Um, I just didn't have good enough grades to get like an elite job, right? I had like a McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or something, which at the time that was like the, the heavenly jobs to get. Um, and I didn't, I, I also didn't know that pathway. I didn't understand the, like the internship and, and networking part that that's, that's critical to getting those jobs. So it was first is like, my job prospects were like kind of shitty and that didn't get me excited at all. And then second is my dad was just really pushing me. He was just like, all right, you should start a company. I was like, awesome. Don't really understand what that entails, but like, let me study it academically and I'll figure it out. Um, and, and, and that was it, right? It's, I started with, um, you know, a few like hypotheses that I thought that I thought made sense. I would say graduated from, from university, like with a, I would say with a pretty good, like true north, what we were trying to do. And yeah, it took us less than one year to launch the product, which I was, in retrospect, I'm shocked it took us less than a year to launch the product. So what do you think, you know, took you guys so long and what ended up becoming First Help Financial? Sure, sure. So it's, um, well, first off, I think that speed of market was like, like a record because First Help Financial is not a finance company. We are a regulated entity. Um, that today is regulated by 27, 27 different regulatory bodies at least once per year, like including the CFPB, Division of Banks, and, and, and stuff like that. So the fact that like a non-business major was able to get to market in like 10 months, um, I, I think that was, that was pretty exceptional. It took me longer to launch Copley. Um, and I had a, you know, an MBA for Harvard <laughs> at that time. Um, but the, um, yeah, I, I think the ideation part was um, not having any frameworks and just being like, really, really hungry to get cash in the door and get cash flowing, flowing to the bottom line was a true north that we just use commonsensically. Like at the time, you know, we weren't reading startup blogs. I didn't understand what PC was. I didn't even understand like basic accounting where we're, we're getting started. But just the the common sense of like generate more revenue than your costs are was a pretty useful true north for those first few years of just keeping costs down and between laser folks and product market fit, like we can act, we, we can make all these words very, very academic now, but just like make sure revenue is more than cost uh, was <laughs> was our entire true north. So then, so then we think with the company was first help financial. What ended up being the business model? How are you guys making money there? Sure, sure. So the the thing that got me excited is I want to create at the very very beginning. I want to create a bank for recent immigrants. Um, right. I just saw like at the time, like 30 million recent immigrants to, to the United States. Very few products were catered to them and, st and stuff like that, especially looking at looking at um, immigrants on like the less acculturated side. And um, like, for example, if you just take U.S. Hispanics, I think it's like the fifth. If U.S. Hispanics were their own country, 
it would be the fifth largest GDP in the world. Like I'm, I'm actually shocked more businesses aren't focused on the segment. And that was it. We're like, look, it seems like a lot, really, really big segment. I had grown up doing lots of um, summertime manual labor jobs. And I was a kid, those manual labor jobs with like the Irish and Portuguese who were like the, the immigrants at the time. And by the time I was in college, fit, finishing my time of doing these like, you know, uh, you know, landscaping, I was a stonemason, a furniture mover and all this sort of stuff. It had been replaced by people from Mexico and Brazil. I mean, in Boston, they're they all Brazilians. And so some of you, I'd kind of like interact with these people like a ton and had some sort of like a, like a cultural affinity for how things happen. And I, I kind of had a firsthand account of like how shitty it was to get a credit card, to get a loan, to get a bank and all these other things. So we started out as kind of like a new bank chime, like big financial services platform. We became just an auto lending platform, I would say. I would say it's actually kind of the path of least resistance from a technology, capital, and regulatory standpoint, meaning that like I was able to launch with just off-the-shelf tech. Um, the regulatory was not federal. It was state level. So I just had to get regulated by a division of banks in each state that we operate in, which at the beginning was just Massachusetts. And um, prom I promise you, state regulators are much easier. State regulators are typically like, Old women who you who like want to have a coffee with you when you're submitting an application. Federal is very very different. Um, and and finally from capital, like you only needed I think like two hundred fifty thousand dollars to launch a lending business in Massachusetts. I was like I I can I can put that together. Whereas if we you know if we needed ten million dollars, that would have been <laughs> dramatically beyond my ability to uh, to raise. And you guys were able to fully bootstrap the operation. I mean, obviously now, you know, with the company that we're going to be talking about, Cobley, you know, it's, it has been a little bit uh, different, you know, the experience on how you guys have gone about really capitalizing the business. But how has it been, you know, bootstrapping a company like this one? Yeah, so we did raise friends and family. Um, so it wasn't like a full, full bootstrap. It is a lending company. Like our inventory is mine. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's to be honest, I didn't even understand at the time. I didn't understand there was a different perspective. Like I, the concept of raising money, the concept of raising venture capital money was, I, I didn't understand those things conceptually when we first started. Um, we first started ramping up and started making some loans just to prove that like, you know, we're having loans that performed and all this stuff. And then it came 2008 where we were definitely burning money um, and the subprime crisis happened and we're, you know, an alternative finance company. So we just fit right into the thing of like high risk lending, absolutely not. So we actually tried to raise money in 2008 unsuccessfully. At that point, I had to like get rid of the whole team. Co-founders left. Uh, I fired everyone. I was like for two years, me and literally one and a half employees. And we were profitable. And just I kind of used that time to just figure out a way to get debt into because right because it's cause we needed lines of credit kind of these revolving debt facilities that are designed for non non depository financial institutions. And right before business school, I was able to I was able to get one um, from from Wells Fargo, and then. Um, yeah, I would say the big the big challenge was really capitalizing a very good performing book of loans. And obviously, once Wells Fargo came in, obviously, there's still like ups and downs, et cetera. But we we created a pretty good pathway to, to, to having like a very highly diversified capital base uh, for what the company is now, which is which is uh, one of the biggest independent auto lenders in America. Now, one thing that is really incredible is, you know, when you were in it, you know, we're talking about you got started like about 2006. Then in 2010, you decide to do your MBA at Harvard. I mean, I'm sure that at this point you were probably able to teach, you know, at Harvard, you know, given your experience already with, with building a business. So why going to Harvard at that point to do an MBA program in parallel as building a business? Yeah, I don't think I could have taught 
<laughs> it's, um, it's, uh, well, so we tried to raise money in 2008, um, and we failed because there was, the world was ending for all intents and purposes. Uh, like both my co-founders also went to MBA and I just applied the MBA because I didn't know what else I was going to do. Like it was, it was unclear if I was going to stick with the business or go. And, and so like my only backup option was, was that like no one was hiring. I didn't have other business ideas. The business wasn't invalidated. We just didn't have any money. Right. When the business like chugging along with like a single employee, like we were profitable with like, you know, like, a, like $150,000 of revenue. We were like making money, but there's there no ability to scale the business. Right. And so I was doing two things. I was trying to, obviously we're still like growing really, really slowly, but I was both hustling for money and applying to the MBA because I would either look, I got into the MBA, backup plans, the MBA. If I was able to raise money, that's an awesome plan too. And we were able, I was able to do both. And so I kind of, I did the MBA and was managing the biz at the same time. Obviously, I had to hire a team and stuff like that to to lead because I was like not super duper into the into the day to day. Um, but that was it. It was just a it was a backup option because we weren't able to raise money in two thousand eight. So then you end up doing the MBA. How was the MBA? What what kind of things opened up during the MBA that you were like, oh my god, I can't believe this. You know, I'm definitely going to be applying this kind of stuff to to my business. I don't think the MBA was a place for. Um, inspiration it, it, to me it was like i i you know my my knowledge was an inch wide and a mile deep right i, I knew I, and it's, i knew a tremendous amount about auto finance and i knew absolutely nothing about the rest the rest of the world or other types of businesses you name it and so to me it was kind of like filling in all those gaps that like someone who works at a bank or consulting company just gets this really really broad education on how many different i, I had none of that i was just an extreme specialist in something that's relatively obscure i'm sure you've never met people in the, in the auto finance world before right um, and so that was it. I, I wanted I wanted to to um, to kind of fill in a lot of gaps in knowledge that I clearly clearly had, and obviously want to have fun and meet people, and that, that was really useful. And I would say the one thing that kind of changed my perspective is look, first off, financial at the beginning was just a purely Brazilian company. All of our employees were Brazilian. All, all of our customers were Brazilian. I would say a ton of our dealerships, right? Because remember, the dealer we we do origination only through car dealerships, right? So we have no direct sales presence. A lot of our dealerships were Brazilian owned. And so I had this like completely Brazilian work experience, um, which is kind of funny. And then when I got to HBS, it was kind of back in the time when, when the term BRICS was originally coined and, you know, it was just Brazil, Russia, India, and China, back when Russia and China were still thought of as, you know, as wholesome, good players on, on, in, in the world economy. And I was like, this seems so super cool. I, I went down there a few times for the, for the first time and just started getting really excited about a few, few different macro things. And I saw, there's a few different business models that I thought were really inevitable. And I thought, um, if I move down there, I'd say 50%, I'm going to get just an incredible experience, right? It's like, at worst case scenario, it's going to be like, you know, three chapters in my future autobiography. Best case scenario, I'm going to create this like really amazing business and be able to do tons of things that are cross border um, and take advantage of these macro trends I thought were pretty were pretty inevitable in, in Brazil. And uh, yeah, and Cobley was very much piggybacking off a lot of things I learned at, at First Up Financial. Um, and the MBA was definitely certainly like, it, it just lubricated my pathway of getting into there, right? Because I could plug into the HBS network down there. And, um, you know, I had a brand behind me that people took seriously and stuff like that. And that was, uh, I'd say, a very, very important part about me, uh, me kind of getting my feet wet in a, a very, very new place. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, 
you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So let's talk about you deciding that it's time to pack the bags and, and start a new company. I mean, obviously at this point, you know, First Help Financial, you know, was uh, you know, on a good path. So I'm sure that that decision, you know, of, uh, you know, kind of like turning page, you know, on the operator side day to day was not an easy one to start cobbling. Um, it was, you mean turning page, like, like leaving the operation of first self-financial. That's right. <laughs> yeah, de definitely. It was tons of, we, we, there's tons of issues on that, on that transfer. Like we had, we had some leadership. I, I, let me just put it this way. I was the first CEO and our current CEO who's been the CEO for 10 years, who's been incredible. Um, we had three CEOs <laughs> between he and I in a span of like four years. Um, yeah, the first one was just lack of cultural alignment, um, big time. And I was like leaving and coming back and then the guy <laughs> quits. Well, sorry, sorry. Our, our first CEO was actually was in like 2009 and we fired him because he was just such a bad CEO. We thought we were going to like bring in someone real experience. We found that most of the people from the finance company are just not as much forward thinkers, not as analytical as like you or I might be. And just, we brought it in. It was just like, this guy was just applying like the old school playbook. We're, we're not trying to do, do the old school playbook. We're trying to like, you know, I'd say our model is not disruptive from an academic sense of the word, but we're trying to do everything better. Like think about like what, like, you know, Elon Musk did to just let me take a manufacturer apart and put it back together in a better way to create a better product. That's what we we're trying to do. <laughs> I just wanted to do the tradition. So CO1, fired. CO2 was, uh, came in when I was, was at business school, tons of super smart guy, but tons of cultural issues. Um, he quits. We hire another CEO, again, uh, like an, a guy from the traditional industry. Um, we fire him. And I would say... <laughs> I was starting to go down to Brazil in like 2013 and 2014. And then when the final one was finally, like, oh my God, I think I have to go back. Like, I have to be the CEO. And then we, we put in our current CEO as like kind of an interim CEO at the time. And it's just been an absolute match made in heaven. So that transition, I think I could write a case study on how not to, to do it. Uh, <laughs> a, a passing the baton of, of leading an organization because that was, that was a hot mess. There's, like I said, three CEOs between me and our current CEO. 
Um, so anyway, that was super bumpy. Uh, we survived. Um, there's definitely like moments where I thought that bumpiness could have created uh, a downfall for the company, but we survived and um, and have been been super thriving. I say the last like eight to ten years have been exceptional for for the biz. Um, yeah, and then I jumped back into founding from 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 very early stage, where just getting your hands very dirty, being the you know head of product, head of sales, head of finance, all in one position right off the bat, um, all over again. So then let's talk about Cobly. Cobly, the idea of Cobly comes in knocking. You know, tell us about the incubation and and bringing it to life in Brazil. Yeah, so the, um, the inspiration for Cobly is definitely based off of a lot of the experience at First Health Financial. So at First Health today, about 70% of our loans are small businesses, so they're work, work, uh, working vehicles. So I had a little bit of an understanding of how fleets, may, of how fleets worked. And I had a little bit of that of that that, uh, that touch point. A lot in auto, there's a lot of tracking. So I'd actually have played around tracking devices to see if we want to like track uh, customers to to minimize delinquencies and stuff. I'd actually bought a lot of things off like Alibaba and tried to make these kind of like home makeshift uh, tracking devices. And in general, I there was a bunch of IoT companies that were being started at the time, right in the early um, you know the early 2010s. And I just had a sense that IoT was going to become something very big. It was going to become, in my opinion, kind of a definitional technology over the next, next 10 years. Right? I just generally saying, look, the digital world will clearly grow. And there needs to be some sort of bridge to connect the offline world via sensors to interact with the online world. Right? And whoever can build that bridge is going, to, is going to be onto a very big opportunity. And, and that was it. I would say it's probably 50% of faith, 50% of I already had a bit of experience of it. Um, and uh, and that was it. So we you know we we built an MVP, tested a few different go to markets, um, and then we launched formally in in 2017. So Cobly is um, you know six and a half years into into operations now. So what is the business model? How do you guys make money for the people listening to get it? <laughs> sure, sure. So we are what's called vehicle telematics, right? So we put a series of different sensors onto the vehicles of any company that uses vehicles to operate. Um, which are highly varied, but our biggest segments are telecom companies. So think of like your Comcast guy with a ladder on the top of the sedan going to do service or installation. Energy companies, pretty pretty similar type type market, right? A guy going to do service installation, something physical. Last mile delivery companies, think of Amazon, that sort of profile. Um, lots in agriculture, um, lots in third-party services, whether it's a security company or third-party cleaning services company, stuff like that. As I said, we work with everyone. We work with Localiza. We, we, we work with DHL. And so we work with a huge, huge range of companies, but it's typically in the service and installation uh, place. And there's basically three pain points that we try to solve, right? The first pain point is I want better visibility on my operating SLAs, right? I want to understand, like, um, what's, you know, what is the average time of spent at the client? What sort of clients do we show up to late? Um, is the technician doing certain services that, that he should or shouldn't be doing? Second is uh, around cost savings, right? I want to minimize, there's three cost savings. It's gas, total cost of ownership of the vehicle, and, um, and typically everything based around labor law and driving compliance. And the third um, pain point that we solve is driver safety, which is also can be thought of as a euphemism for driver compliance, right? Make sure he's using a seatbelt, not smoking a cigarette, not as someone who's unauthorized, you know, in the passenger seat and stuff like that. And how we do that is we put a range of different sensors. The basic sensor would be GPS and a solarometer, right? Where's the car and how's the car move? Uh, then we have a bunch of different sensors, everything based around like sound. Uh, we're shortly launching temperature stuff, um, driver ID stuff. And then the, the sensor that we most utilize is actually camera, 
right? So the dash cam where we put a camera actually on the windshield, which records the driver, the invasive things like facial recognition and stuff like that. And facing externally, which everything from accident reconstruction to validation that the customer arrived at the correct cust- at the correct time. So you have all this video footage. And to us, is if you think of IT of saying, how do we get sensors into more things that are offline? We, we do believe videos like the final frontier of sensors, like the, the amount of intelligence we can get from a single image versus like a GPS um, location point, it's night and day, right? So our, our, our vision is cameras are fa- fundamentally like, especially in logistics cameras, we're going to create fundamentally a surveillance system that can recognize and optimize a lot of things just through, just through machine vision. Uh, so yeah, like I said, it's very much a, a camera-based company. The majority of what we sell to these uh, to these operations nowadays. And what about fundraising? Because you know, this time around, you did things a little bit different when it came to capitalizing the business. Because there was so much upfront cost, so much more upfront cost uh, to this business than a first self financial. Uh, I definitely started the company with like the whole like almost a curmudgeon. Type type perspective on fundraising, like let's you know we don't need that. You know, I, I came in with a little bit of capital um, to 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 bootstrap and stuff like that. But you just kind of got to the point of like, look, you do need to spend a lot of money in building that that MVP, uh, that a technical MVP. And look, it, it, SaaS is like it's like buying bonds, right? You spend money today just to receive a series of cash flows in the future that have a good ROI, that hopefully have a good cash cash payback. But it does create a cash dislocation that is very, very hard to manage if you're playing growing fast. And so I think with SaaS companies, it's very, very hard to truly bootstrap a SaaS company unless you want to grow very slowly over a long period of time. And that's typically hard if you're in, if you're in a decently competitive space. Um, and so uh, we launched 2017. We didn't raise our first money until until 20, we raised a series, uh, series A in 2019. And uh, yeah, and then you, you definitely kind of get onto a, a, a fundraising train, which you need to be sure that you're managing growth and growth efficiency effectively, which I think we've, we've done that mostly effectively. We definitely had moments where I look back on, I think I could have managed things more more efficiently. Um, but yeah, the COPE is much more around the traditional venture track. So tell us about also founder and founding team dynamics. How was it, you know, this time around? Yeah, so I, I mean, first self financial, I had a, I had a bad founder dynamic, um, right? Because I think it was a few things. It was first is I think the three of our founders we wanted different things, um, and we had no complementary skills, and we none of us really knew what we were doing. So there was lots of clashes there. Um, and then for this uh, for the second time, I, I, I found a founder because like he's, he's Brazilian, so he had lots of local dynamic knowledge that that I didn't have. And he brought something to me who's much more operationally minded than I am. Like I'm much more like deductive reasoning. I get more excited about, I'd say, shiny objects on the horizon than, than the operation. Clearly, you need a balance of those things. You need someone's like pulling you towards some sort of true north. You also need someone who's actually making sure that the operation is is, is, is good functioning. And that was the synergy that we that we actually put together. That I don't think I could have explained that at the time when when. I found him. I just found that the interpersonal dynamic was was we had, we had a good working relationship. Um, but yeah, I'd say that that dynamic is really really important. That you have a very very clear synergy. And in general, I find the internal external perspective and more important synergy than a sales and product synergy, uh, which is usually the one that VCs that VCs will will bring up pretty pretty frequently. So. Obviously, talking about VCs and, and raising money, you know, vision is a big one. So if you were to go to, least, to sleep tonight and you woke up in a world 
in which the vision of Kobli was fully realized? What would that world look like? <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's we will be its mission and and kind of where the company wants to, what wants to be right. Like it's it's, it's important the mission that is you know big, inspirational, not and, and not about money, right? And to us, it's like we want to be we want to be the largest um, uh, IoT company and fundamentally digitize a massive offline world so we can interact with the internet in the in a highly connected manner. Right. And we think that can bring, you know, costs down, that can bring service levels up, it can make business more efficient, make consumers happier, et cetera. So from a mission standpoint, is that is so it's really connect, connect all offline things we can interact with the internet. Uh, wh where I want the company goes, look, we want to be the biggest vehicle telematics company in Latin America, right? Today we have, we have a little less than 100,000 vehicles in our base. Um, for light vehicles, we're the largest telematics player in Latin America. In the next two to three years, we should become the largest telematics company in Latin America across all sorts of vehicles. And then in the next five years, we want to put a million vehicles uh, into our base, about 60 million commercial vehicles in, in Latin America. And so it, it is just the, the tip of the iceberg, but it's, it's the amount of things that we can do once we really become the largest generator of, of this sort of offline data is, is pretty exciting. So for example, via the dash cams today, our dash cams cover every five days we cover 95 percent of all public roadways in brazil we have a video camera we have footage of that um come next june we will have that every 24 hours and in less than two years we will have real-time video footage of 95 percent of the public roadways of brazil every three and a half hours and so we'll fundamentally have the most the largest surveillance uh, system that exists uh, for public roadways and um, in in Brazil, obviously, then and then then outwards in Latin America. Just the amount of things we do, right? It's like where are people? Where are lost vehicles? Where are lost things? Um, how can we optimize kind of visibility around different roadways? Um, so, look, I think we can be fundamentally disruptive to to mapping technologies, to security systems around people, around freight, and, and stuff like that, and certainly completely. Reconstruction, how insurance is priced, um, operate, and, and stuff like that. So we, we do believe that kind of the data that we generate, well, we monetize our system and insights that, that, that we get the business, that the data itself can be something that's by itself super, super, super interesting. Now, we're talking about the future. I want to talk about the past, but with a lens of reflection. Let's say you were able to go, in, I put you into a time machine right now, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back to 2006, you know, to maybe to one of those classrooms in Duke where you were starting to think about what would be an idea that you could bring to life. And let's say you're able to sit down next to that younger Parker and you're able to give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, yeah. so I would say uh, the, the first is just insanely common sense, insanely commonsensical. So I'd say the first is... Um, be really, really good at, at planning. Like I, 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 even to this day, I'm a bad planner. I think we've, we, we, our team has become a very good planner. But the more clarity you can have over what you're trying to do over the next year and therefore allocating resources in the most effective way as opposed to in haphazard weekly as things come up, putting money behind it was something I've done excessively in my career. I think planning and operational strategy is one of the biggest superpowers any founder can have, right? Just cutting through bullshit and focusing. Like I, I do quite a bit of seed investing today. When a founder comes to me and says, Parker, um, I have one customer 
and I'm going to sell to that customer through one channel and I'm going to sell one product to them. And, and assuming that founder's a smart guy, uh, guy or gal, I almost don't even care what you're selling. Just that level of focus in competent hands is a superpower. Whereas typically you get like, oh, we have three products, we have nine different customers, we have three different channels through which we sell. It's not possible, right? Like you can't, you can't accumulate enough learning repetitions with that level of focus, right? So I think just focus and focus just comes down from really good planning, understand the mechanics of what success looks like. Um, and it's very, very hard. I think it takes years and years to master, but I would say that's, that's by far the, the first one. And then the second one is um, distribution is typically more important than, than product. And it's very, very hard to build, build a business on the back of small tickets. Um, just take a SaaS example. Like if you look at um, um, 60% of publicly traded SaaS companies are essentially enterprise-only companies and 85-plus percent are mid-market on up. And that means like, you know, a dozen, you know, 12, 15% are SME-only, right? And you just get, it's so hard to build a business on the back of small tickets because the sales efficiency is worse. You have to have such incredible volume to make the business big and stuff like that. And so if I were to say design it in a perfect world, I would say something where you can sell to the enterprise as soon as humanly possible with as few debts as humanly possible. I would say that is the best pathway to starting a company that has the perspective of being something very big. I love it. Parker, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not super active on, on, on social media, but I would say... Um, uh, honestly, super happy to put me an email in there or, or something like that. I would say like email or WhatsApp is the easiest way to, to get in contact. Amazing. Well, hey, Parker, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. <laughs> Excellent, Alejandro. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.